It's going down, and you're invited for what they selling. We ain't buying. There is no running. There is no hiding. There's only fighting or dying. It's going down, and you're invited for what they selling. We ain't buying. There is no running. There is no hiding. There's only fighting or dying. It's Going Down is a digital community center from anarchist, anti-fascist, autonomous, anti-capitalist, and anti-colonial movements. Our mission is to provide an autonomous and resilient platform to publicize and promote revolutionary theory and action. Go to itsgoingdown.org for daily updates. Check out our online store for ways to donate and rate and follow us on iTunes if you like this podcast. What's up, everyone? My name's Jared Shanahan. I'm a longtime activist, organizer, researcher. I work as a professor of criminal justice, which are not two words that I would use together or at all um, in a normal context. And for the last five years, I have been conducting uh, an open-ended study of the history and social life of the Rikers Island penal colony in New York City. Awesome. And as we were saying before we started recording, also shout out, you work on Hard Crackers, and you worked on a collection of Noel Ignatiev's work, which we also encourage people to check out. Yeah, Noel was a great friend uh, and mentor to me, um, and his passing was a real blow, and we're really happy to be presenting um, for the first time, uh, a collection of his short writing that's going to be out um, on Verso at the end of June. Well, let's just get started. So to just kind of start us off, tell us about Rikers Island. Why is it important? And give us some background and history about it to guide us through the rest of the discussion. So Rikers Island is a really interesting cultural figure. You see it on Law and Order. The lawyer meets with their defendant on Rikers. Um, it's regularly referenced in popular culture and hip hop lyrics in the press, in the New York City tabloid press. Um, if a particularly reviled criminal is apprehended, you, the tabloids are rooting for all the bad things that are going to happen to them when they get to Rikers, right? It's very much a part of the popular imagination. But in reality, Outside of its cultural life, Rikers Island is a real place that uh, most New Yorkers don't actually know that much about. There's a widely cited um, fact that the average New Yorker probably can't find it on a map. Some people don't actually know that it's an island. Uh, and the people who do know that it's an island tend to believe that it's one big, large jail on an island. Um, in reality, it's 10 jails spread across a massive sprawl in the East River. If you've ever flown into LaGuardia Airport, you have probably seen it and you didn't even know what you were looking at. It's that big and it's that integrated into New York City's landscape. Um, it's situated next to LaGuardia, um, within view of the planes taking off all day long. Um, but it simultaneously is removed from the life of the city. 
So this kind of paradox is what led me to study the history of Rikers, right? Um, I was uh, briefly locked up there in 2016, and I would look out the window of the dormitory where I was held, and I would see planes taking off, coming and going all day long. You could hear them overhead. You could see the Manhattan skyline. Um, one of the dorms I was in had a beautiful view of the skyline. Uh, the exercise yard that I would go to every day um, had a panoramic view uh, with the Empire State Building dead in the center. And so I became fascinated with the idea that Rikers is a place where the city quarantines the social problems that it doesn't want to deal with and attempts to stick them far away from the neighborhoods that are being gentrified and from the view of polite society. I later learned, actually, that this was a phenomenon that had been happening in New York City since the Dutch colonial period. The original jail was built on the outskirts of town, which at that time is the site of City Hall today uh, in the southernmost part of Manhattan. And several iterations of this New York City jail were then moved north as the, the settlement crept northward. Um, there was briefly... Um, a settlement where Bellevue is. There was a jail there. And then um, on to uh, what's, what was called Blackwell's Island at the time, and is today called Roosevelt Island, and then on to Rikers. And you see the, the phenomenon again and again of the, the city's unwanted people being pushed further and further away from prying eyes. But nonetheless, this, this jail and its social function represent a very important part of how the city functions on a day-to-day basis, um, how poverty is managed, how illegality and deviance are managed, and how the city keeps um, it, it basically the largest kind of capitalist machine in the United States just churning all the time and reproducing those class relations all the time. And so I decided that Rikers Island was a big part of how the city functioned, and um, it was not being discussed in that way. What made you decide to write a book about Rikers? Basically, uh, when when I found out that I was going to get sent there, I'm a nerd. So I said, all right, um, I want to learn the history of this place. And so I did a, a few keyword searches on the Internet. I'm ashamed to say I went on Amazon.com. I typed it in, history of Rikers. And I was amazed that nothing came up. Um, and I discovered that actually... Very little serious uh, scholarly research had been done uh, into the history of Rikers. And by extension, a lot of the most important uh, social institutions that structure daily life in places like New York, very little institutional history exists apart from the histories that these institutions provide of themselves, which, as we know, um, are, are very biased and can't be trusted. So. I learned as much as I could, uh, first about the facility that I had been held in, um, which ended up being the key to the entire puzzle, uh, because the, I discovered that the, the building that I was held in, which is the short stay facility for sentenced men, had been constructed in the 1960s as part of a humanistic project led by these liberal reformers who took over the Department of Correction and attempted to recreate Rikers Island as a haven for progressive punishment. 
where clinicians and social workers and universities would be brought in um, to repurpose the jail as an agent of social good. So they really believe that jails could be used to solve the social problems that underlay incarceration. And so I, I couldn't believe the contrast between how the facility that I was locked up in, the Eric M. Taylor Center, how that building was rationalized when they were building it, and how it ended up actually being in practice. This contrast was so remarkable. Um, and so from there, I just worked backwards and then forwards. I, I traced the history of short-stay men's incarceration um, in New York City back to its colonial period. And then I traced the story forward uh, to, to the present day, and it created a vivid picture of read folks like Michel Foucault, which is that um, some of the nastiest jails and prisons originated as reforms, and they were created by reformers who had all kinds of utopian plans for how these facilities would function. Uh, but in reality, these facilities just end up reflecting the class violence that's at the core of capitalist society. You talked about how it kind of grew out of this reform period. How did the jail become a jail? That's a great question. And it's a very uh, important part of the book. I chart the growth of the guards and cops in New York City, not as an agglomeration of individual people who have prejudices and biases and lack empathy and need training and all the rest of it, but as an organized political force, which is what they are, right? So much of the discourse around policing and corrections in the present encourages us to treat cops and guards as individuals. I mean, that is by definition, a liberal analysis. And so I explored their history as an organized social force. And I actually found that beginning in the late 1950s and early 1960s, as the Warren Court, the Supreme Court, in a different period of the Supreme Court today, handed down a number of rulings that increased people's civil liberties in their interactions with the police. And as the uh, federal government promoted civil rights legislation and eliminated a lot of the um, more obvious and formal forms of discrimination in America, there was an organized effort across the country on the grassroots level, first in police departments and then in correction departments, to resist these gains, to push back um, against civil rights, procedural rights, the rights of prisoners, and to assert the power of law and order as we know it today, right? So the story of how Rikers came to be Rikers is very much a history of the law and order movement as an organized political force. And something that I try to emphasize in the book, right, and this comes out of my own um, you know, intellectual home in autonomous Marxism, I emphasize that the law and order movement was not imposed on the cops and on the guards from these right-wing politicians on high, like George Wallace, Richard Nixon. In reality, the law and order movement grew out of what we might call rank-and-file activity on a day-to-day -day basis. 
uh, among cops who did not want to accept civilian oversight of policing, right? And so they fought against civilian review boards the same way that they do today. Um, it, it was promoted by guards who did not want to accept use of force protocol, which means that if you use violence against a prisoner, you have to write a report and justify it, and you can be found at fault. The guards did not want that. They wanted the same thing that a lot of working class people from the working class neighborhoods that cops and guards come from want. They wanted complete control over the conditions of their daily work with nobody telling them what to do. The problem is, unlike an iron worker or a steel worker or a plumber, um, the material that they were working on was violence against human beings. And what they wanted was they wanted unquestioned authority to use violence against the people who they dealt with on a day to day basis. And that formed the core of the activist grassroots of the law and order movement. Um, and it became uh, the kind of guiding principle for how Rikers Island is managed up to the present day. You know, there's a lot of parallels. We would see that today with kind of the rise of kind of blue lives matter and all this stuff and sort of a, um, a very neo fascist reaction to black lives matter. Precisely. And I think that, you can, um, you've already seen this, right? You don't have to study the 60s. You've already seen this in action with the way that Trump interacted with his own activist grassroots. Um, Trump didn't start the Blue Lives Matter movement, right? The Blue Lives Matter movement was to everything, based on everything that I have read, um, a, a grassroots campaign that originated within the NYPD, um, against the Black Lives Matter movement and the post-Ferguson Street Rebellion. Trump was then able to activate this movement to put it to work uh, toward his larger political project. And there was certainly dynamism between the grassroots and national politics. But these groups, um, based on everything that I've read, um, were not by any means astroturfed. Um, an interesting player that I found in um, the 1960s, actually, and I, I wrote an article about this with my good friend, uh, the policing scholar Tyler Wall, was the, the, the role played by uh, the John Birch Society, actually, in organizing um, the precursor to Blue Lives Matter, which was called uh, the campaign to support your local police. Um, and actually, we found that some of the earliest literature for the Blue Lives Matter movement in New York City contained the uh, uh, explicit verbiage, support your local police. Um, and so this was very much a grassroots effort um, led by the John Birch Society, but it played off the dynamism that was going on in departments all over the country where cops were pushing against civilian review. They were pushing against the procedural revolution. Um, they thought that um, the federal government was effectively fascist in that it was supporting uh, civil rights legislation and it was pushing diversity and all the things that that hard right people still believe today. Um, and so there was there was tremendous um, energy and dynamism at the at, at on the grassroots level in police departments and in New York City in the correction department. 
uh, where the guards, uh, the rank and file guards followed the police uh, toward uh, explicitly right wing organizing that was not just um, ideological or rhetorical, but was backed by direct action. Um, there's several events that I detail in the book where Rikers guards um, took direct action, blocking the bridge that serves as the entry point, the sole entry point to the island and engaging in uh, violent and destructive staff riots where they wantonly beat prisoners um, as a specific message to the city that they could do this and get away with it. And um, in pretty much all the cases, they were correct. They, they won these strikes. They were, their rank and file movement um, was more successful than any labor movement in the city of that period. In the book, you talk about the various forces at Rikers. You know, we just talked a little bit about the, you know, the guards themselves. And this ranges from revolutionary movements to prison guard unions to reactionary politicians. So let's kind of dive into that history. Just tell us a little bit about the forces at work and how they sort of shaped Rikers over the years. The book begins on a hopeful note, right? It's um, kind of modeled it after a gear of the wrath of God, right? We're going to find the road to El Dorado and it's going to be wonderful. Um, and so I introduce a troop of progressive era reformers who took over the New York City Department of Correction in 1954 and unrolled a, an ambitious plan to repurpose the city's jail system and to make it a haven for rehabilitative penology. They really believed that they could replace guards with social workers, and they believed that they could transform jails into clinics that helped people deal with alcoholism, antisocial behavior, and uh, a number of other um, what they believed to be medical maladies that led people to be incarcerated in the first place. Of course, this was a bourgeois liberal movement. They were not aimed at uh, combating the economic, uh, structural, racial issues um, that we know underlie incarceration and that predispose people to negative uh, experiences with cops and courts. Right. They understood these these problems as individual medical uh, questions, um, kind of individual pathological problems of people who found themselves in jail. Um, and these these liberal reformers, these post-war liberals, were part of a general zeitgeist of um, American liberalism that was flush with cash on the post-war boom. Right. This is when this is the heyday of American manufacture. When Trump says make America great again. Hell, when Bernie says make America great again, using different words. This is the period of time that they're referring to, the post-war period uh, where state and federal governments were flush with tax dollars um, and were willing to undertake um, ambitious social experiments to mitigate the, um, the, the worst symptoms of structural racism, of economic inequality. Um, and so this was New York City's best shot at humanizing its punishment system, which is the great liberal ideal of underlying punishment. Um, and so you had these post-war liberals who really believed in what they were doing. Uh, and it's really 
almost impossible for uh, for our 21st century minds to wrap our heads around this. But up until the late 1960s, early 1970s, in the United States, questions of crime and punishment were not particularly politicized. So Democrats and Republicans did not fight with each other over who was tougher on crime and who was softer on crime the way that they do today. Um, there was a general bipartisan consensus around um, this vague rehabilitative program that underlay most American prisons and jails at this time. That You know, prisoners did something bad, but, you know, people can change and we we have to we have to lock them up, but we can also provide them with means to change their lives and learn a trade and quit drinking and all the rest of it. This kind of humanistic penology was not um, vociferously opposed by the hard right the way that it is today. That came later. Um, and so there actually wasn't much organized political opposition um, in the early days of New York City's rehabilitative jail expansion. Uh, but what what there was uh, on the grassroots level in the jails on a day to day basis, there was um, a body of jail guards, right, who work who worked at Rikers and worked in New York City jails, who did not want to be social workers. They wanted to lock them up and forget about them. They wanted to use threats and intimidation rather than uh, a complex system of you know rewards and punishments and all the rest of it. Um, they wanted their jobs to be easy. And so they resisted on the, the day-to-day level. They pushed against this kind of this rehabilitative zeitgeist, right? Um, and for a while, they were bought off. The, the city just had so much money in the late 1950s, early 1960s. The mayor, um, this guy by the name of Wagner, who had run on a platform he called the New Deal for New York, was willing to throw unprecedented amounts of money at the public sector to build up a prosperous and loyal base um, for his mayoralty. And so the guards for a while were bought off. Um, This changed with the political polarization of the mid 1960s. Um, law enforcement and corrections unions were a part of, um, as they are today, an organized um, national resistance um, to the civil rights movement, to black and brown power. And this was felt profoundly in inside and outside of New York City's jails, specifically as cops and guards began to deal with black and brown revolutionaries. You write that the jails uh, had a central role in reproducing social life in New York City. Explain what you mean by that. So traditional criminology has held that jails and prisons are places where people are locked away. Right. And um, the, the famous formula provided by Irving Goffman in the mid 20th century, which has been critiqued a million times, is that jails are um, and prisons are total institutions. There are these places that are removed from society. They follow their own rules, right? 
and you may as well have just been sent to Mars, right? If you're locked up there, right? You're just in a completely alien environment. Simultaneously, um, jails and prisons, um, when they are treated by historians, are most often treated in isolation. So you will write a history of a jail or a prison. I'm reading right now uh, the book Stateville. It's a, it's a classic history of um, the Stateville Penitentiary in Illinois. And it's very much a history of one warden after another, and they change the policies, and then the the composition of the prisoners change, you know, suddenly there's more black prisoners than white prisoners at a certain point in history, right? And that's the history. It's very much an insular world. Um, but I don't think that accurately reflects the social role that jails and prisons actually play in society. Um, jails and prisons are as much a part of the social landscape as any other institution or location in any given society. Now, the example that I talk about in New York uh, in the case of Rikers, is um, Rikers Island is as much a part of New York as Times Square, as Williamsburg, as Greenwich Village. You pick it, the, the Empire State Building, the most famous places of New York that are associated with the heart of the city. Rikers is as much a part of the city or more so. Um, it's the way that the city manages its social problems. It's a place where the city quarantines the symptoms of the problems that it can't solve. And it's also a place um, where tens of thousands of New Yorkers cycle in and out of on a given year. I mean, I think it's it's really worth um, taking a step back and looking at the sheer enormity of an operation like Rikers. There's 10 jails. Um, I think eight of them are currently in use. Right. Um, and they are the site of tens of thousands, sometimes hundreds of thousands of people experiencing incarceration, uh, most often for, for a short amount of time, um, and then either continuing their ordeal into the state system, right, if they're convicted, or in the case of the, the building where I was locked up, um, you spend a, a short amount of time. I was there for 30 days, right? A lot of guys are there for two months, three months. And then you're back onto the streets. And while you're there, people are constantly coming in off of the streets. So it's very much just an extension of New York City. It's an extension of its culture. And the more you learn about it, the more you can see it all around you in New York. For example, um, after after I got out, you know, I had this plastic bag with all of my shit in it. It's the bag that they give you when you leave. I started to notice people on the train with this bag. And I say, oh, my God, you just got out of jail. You start to notice the, sh the, the state-issued shoes that they give you. You start to notice people wearing those on the in the city. And you say, oh, my God, this place is all around me all the time, and I never even saw it before. You go on to write, quote, as the 1954 rebellion at the House of Detention for Women demonstrates in a radical sense, the boundaries between the jails and the rest of society are, in fact, quite boyish. You touched on that a little bit, but explain that more. Oh, the women's house uh, is a, a very literal uh, example of the poorest boundaries between the jail and broader society. And 
the women's house in detention was a fascinating facility. It was um, located right on Sixth um, Avenue in uh, in Greenwich Village, um, and it was um, is very much overlooking um, the street life that was proliferating in the village in the 50s and 60s. And, uh, you know, m- many of the memoirs written by people who um, who lived there at the time mentioned the women's house. It was just a central part of um, of the city's life. And this was because it was a, a, a 13 floor jail in a highly foot trafficked urban area where the prisoners could just yell out the window to the people below. Um, and it was, it was a very vibrant and dynamic scene. Uh, people would go there and yell on the sidewalk and talk to their partners. And there was, uh, you know, neighbors often complained because there was all kinds of very sexually explicit, you know, when you get out of there, we're going to do X, Y, and Z being shouted in the street. And, uh, but on a, on a more serious level, um, there was also a lot of um, activism that was coordinated. Um, Angela Davis was held there. Um, and when Angela Davis was held there, um, there was a lot of communication between the prisoners and the people on the streets. They were trying to get Angela Davis out of solitary, right? And they were trying to fight against her extradition to California. Um, and when there was a, when there was a riot or a demonstration, um, whether or not it involved Angela Davis, right? Um, people in the jail would be able to communicate to people on the sidewalk and publicize it. The night that Angela Davis was extradited, they were able to communicate down to the street that um, she was being extradited and they were, they were able to mobilize a demonstration. Um, and so this was a place where there was direct communication between the prisoners and the outside world. Um, and it was um, it was a source of great activist energy. There was uh, there were a lot of demonstrations. Um, Marsha P. Johnson and Sylvia Rivera were involved um, in a group called Star that would protest there and protest at the tombs. And there was a lot of cross pollination between the early gay liberation movement and the black and brown power movements uh, working together on prisoner support. Um, and so this is a place very concretely where. Um, you see the the jail not so much as a place removed from society, but as a central part of society. And in a, in a capitalist society, which is held together at its core by violence, um, it's just a particularly visceral expression of the violence that structures our daily life. In the darkness, flares are burning, light shining on it. Was a product of a dark time. Our flames fists, the wheels of cast iron. Looking down the barrel of the war, it was harrowing, but persevering over and over. More addictive than heroin. A decade later, still carrying on. Another year to overcome. Pop the flare with the good times ever roll. Pulling all stops. If you fall back down, let us be a pick me up song. It was a song to overcome challenges too. To channel the vibes of a rhyme that dream true. Making beats and writing riffs. It was a daily routine. Like I was in the basement cooking up the medicine. Writing in reality, you fear of it the minute you let it get into later. 
to get rid of it, gritting my teeth But looking forward to tomorrow, really, if you're sharing the feeling Throw your hands in the air to the ceiling Throw your hands in the air to the ceiling In the darkness, flares are burning Light becomes shining on and on and on In the darkness, flares are burning Light becomes shining on and on and on I guess I can't many ways Survival of the seas of mental get A victim in pain feels like a ball and chain Thought about an enemy within As a dream it all I can't break Your striving is not in vain Teach it every day you give for more And you get less Lost a piece of mind Can I play with bad mass The evil that but only is on and on Hey phenomenon Grand praise and culture Greedy march your freedom carry on Stop a stone Father remember you got a brother And sisterhood We are the army that fall Out we are that man Sad damn it Forces go lie the fact We become a soul that breaks the heart Leave me him back So much is done for those before me I get to dream The legacy and gun The fight to feed me I wanna beat the feet, the kind of they come, how does it fall if you know the feeling? Throw your hands in the air to the ceiling. Throw your hands in the air to the ceiling. In the darkness, flares are burning. Light becomes shining on and on and on. In the darkness, flares are burning. Light becomes shining on and on and on. Flares are burning. On their front lines, lighting up their morning with a new day rise. Flares are burning alright. The fires on their front lines, lighting up their morning with a new day rise. Yes, don't call it the combat Rebelling the attack if you got my back Crocodile rhymes are timeless, it's a fact Ain't it to win it, my bone gotta go speak back In the darkness, flares are burning Light becomes shining on and on and on In the darkness, flares are burning Light becomes shining on and on You talked about how at different periods, you know, the influence of reformers and like wanting to make the jail be something at certain points that was like run by social workers and, you know, less based around punishment, but more about rehabilitation and how that was kind of coming from sort of a, a very liberal view of people just needing to be properly medicated or treated and not really addressing the economic or racial problems within society that were causing, you know, antisocial activity or people to be arrested or whatever. I'm just curious if you could talk more about that. When I first got started with this project, I met with a friend um, who's a, a longtime abolitionist and who specializes in rural incarceration and the upstate New York system in particular, this guy named uh, Jack Norton. And what he told me was, he said, the first thing you need to know about Rikers Island is that it started as a reform. And I couldn't believe it. And of course, it's true. Um, I go through and I go through it in detail in the intro to the book. And this got me kind of on a course of studying the, the origins of different um, short stay and detention facilities in New York City. And Something that they all had in common or that, that most of them prior to the 
the 1980s had in common was the architects in the city who uh, who built the jail were able to incorporate grassroots activism uh, from jail reformers um, to help basically to overcome the public opposition to jail construction, which, you know, in a place like New York where real estate is very precious, um, the NIMBY opposition to jails is very strong. Um, they were help, they were able to help legitimize the institutions, right? Uh, by the, by the 1960s, 1970s, jails and prisons, um, were, had been in the eyes of, um, large swaths of society been thoroughly discredited, right? And this is the, 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 the rehabilitative justification for prisons and jails had been effectively debunked by this period. Um, prisons and jails were very unpopular. Um, but, um, the, um, the reformers did everything they could, just as they do today, um, to argue, no, 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 we can get it right. Trust us. We're the experts. Um, we know social science. We know, we know psychology. We know that if you paint the wall, uh, pastel colors, it will reduce gang violence. We have a study that proves that. So on and so forth. Um, and so the reformers are actually, um, they're necessary accomplices, um, to carceral expansion. And they have been, um, for, for much of the, much of the life of, of the prison, um, since its inception in the, in the late 18th century. Well, moving forward, how has prisoner-led resistance impacted the facility over the decades? I mean, you, know, you kind of start off the book with this mention of this revolt in 1954, but let's just talk about the constant role of prisoner-led resistance. I mean, even just most recently, there's been a hunger strike or a series of hunger strikes at Rikers. How has that shaped the facility? On a positive note, prisoner-led resistance um, has consistently politicized the situation of confinement um, in, at Rikers and in, in New York City's jails. I mean, the liberal version of crime and punishment aims to reduce incarceration to the individual personal outcome of individual personal choices, right? So why are there people in jail? Well, because individual people broke the law, right? And if you're, if you're a humanitarian, you say, well, we can, we can teach them not to break the law, right? That's, that's the classic liberal line. Um, but throughout, um, much of the, the mid to late 20th century, prisoners at Rikers engaged in a variety of spectacular actions and at the women's house as well before it was on Rikers, um, that cast the struggle of prisoners in explicitly political terms, collective terms. This is not about individual people breaking the law. This is about oppression based on uh, racial distinction, on gender distinction, and it's ultimately about the violence at the core of class society. Um, And prisoners um, who revolted, you know, in the 60s, 70s, did a very good job of underscoring these points Um, and in building ties with the people on the outside, which, as we know, is almost essential. On the negative side, um, it's something that we we have experienced recently in the last two years of uh, of struggle in the United States. Uh, they radicalize their enemies. Um, they 
prisoner resistance radicalized the guards, just as um, the black and brown power movements on the outside radicalized the cops. And unfortunately, there's much more um, institutional continuity among our enemies than we have. Um, so cops and guards are always learning and always adapting and they're amassing new equipment and they're learning new skills and they're training for war all the time. Um, whereas sometimes, you know, in, in the U S at least, um, organizing feels kind of like waiting for Godot where you wake up every day and say, what are we doing? Who are we? Where are we? Right. Um, and so unfortunately, um, a lot of the prisoner resistance just led to the further militarization of the jails and prisons, or at least provided an alibi for people who wanted to do that anyway. Um, on the flip side, you know, as you said, that there's there's a hunger strike at Rikers, or there was recently. I know, I'm pretty sure you guys had David Campbell on the show. He's a good friend of mine. He was, he was locked up at Rikers for a year during COVID. Um, and he wrote this fantastic essay that we published on Hardcrackers called Stick Up at Rikers Island. And what that details was how the the, the stick up, which is a it's a it's a classic figure um, of Rikers resistance. You know, an entire house full of prisoners refuses to go to work. They refuse to go to the, the cafeteria. It's kind of like a, like a sit down strike. Um, how they were able to use that in the early days of covid when the guards were saying, oh, it's just like the flu. Oh, don't worry about it. They were keeping prisoners with covid in the same housing areas as prisoners who didn't have covid. They refused to give them masks and other PPE. And so what David and his comrades in there were able to do was organize a massive strike. Um, and not only did it get them the PPE and get them, um, you know, uh, segregated housing for prisoners with COVID, but it also catalyzed the release of over a thousand prisoners uh, in short order, uh, which led to actually the smallest population that there had been uh, on Rikers Island in decades. So there, there is this enduring figure of struggle built into the institutional landscape. And David really underscored this point when we were talking about it. You know, as a historian, I need to remind myself that I actually don't know most of the, most of the things, uh, in the period or the thing that I'm talking about, right? I don't know the vast majority of things that have happened on Rikers. I only get what's the limited things that I've seen and things that I've learned from the archives and heard from people, right? And so I, I said to David, oh, my God, what you guys did was so cool. You organized this big strike, you know, and he was just like, dude, it happens all the time there. And it's so unremarkable that most of the guys that were a part of this thing didn't really think twice about it when it was over. Um, and so that that goes to show that there's untold um, acts of resistance that are a part of the institutional fabric um, and that are part of this constant push and pull that characterizes life in a carceral facility. Well, we already talked a little bit about the impact of law and order, but let's talk about sort of how that influenced specifically like politicians and bureaucrats that ended up uh, running or, you know, setting the policies of the prison. And I'm curious, you know, how this also plays into the rise of things like broken windows theory, which is sort of, you know, post-liberation movements of the 60s and 70s, did that impact the way that Rikers was run? By the 1970s, 
nobody believed in anything anymore, really, in the administration of places like Rikers. Um, the city adopted um, a policy that actually the um, this guy uh, Benjamin Ward, um, you, who you might know from the Kwesi Balagoon poem Big Ben. Right. Balagoon has a poem making fun of this guy because he was a police commissioner. He was also kind of a famous alcoholic, a playboy, right? Big Ben likes to entertain and be entertained, as the poem says. Um, but he came out and said, yeah, you know, the policy the, that we use to manage the city jails was simple. It's what you do with a garbage can. You sit on the lid and you hope the garbage doesn't get out. Right. And this was a, a fairly progressive guy. He was one of the first, if not the first, black commissioners. I mean, he was being just very honest about the city's approach by the 1970s. Um, and this was part of the success of the law and order movement, which was to discredit um, any vestiges of post-war liberalism in how uh, the city um, approached questions of punishment. Um, and there were um, enduring footholds for liberal reformers. So there's there's multiple oversight agencies in New York City and New York State. The Board of Correction on the city level, the New York State Commission of Correction on the state level. Um, their power was largely reduced to demanding access to the facilities, which they could most often get and then reporting to the public what was going on in them, right? This is like academics make a big deal out of this. They call it bearing witness, right? But these institutions did not have a whole lot of power beyond that. Um, this is all to say that the law and order movement, um, and it's, it's tough on crime sensibility, uh, by the 1980s, this was hegemonic, right? Um, it was difficult to find a politician um, who was, willing to seem softer on crime than their opponent. And we all know the story, right, of how this this moment transformed the Democratic Party. Um, so that by the time you get someone like Bill Clinton running for office, um, he is trying to actually outflank his Republican opponent to the right. Um, and so this was uh, basically how Rikers um was settled in the 1980s. Um, a massive infrastructural expansion took place on the island, uh, beginning with um, the police crackdown on the so-called crack epidemic. Um, they were building facilities so fast and they were locking people up so fast on Rikers um, that the island actually to this day um, is dotted with these just um, these short-term kind of disposable like trailer jails that they built like they're a bit like um the trailers that they that fema gives you if your house gets knocked down by a tornado or something but they're they're jails um they're um they were built all over the island um as a short-term solution to the city's desire to just lock up as many um people of color as possible uh, who were associated with the use of crack cocaine. Um, and so you see, you can actually see to this day these, these old rotting trailers, right? Which were terrible asbestos laden nightmares. 
uh, I was I was standing in the the exercise yard one day and we heard this tremendous crash and we all turned around and one of them had just caved in right thankfully they're not being used to house prisoners anymore but that's only because as the city was erecting these these trailers they were also building uh, permanent jails um in fact the city um to my mind based on what i know uh set a record for um expedient construction of a carceral facility um based on um, using these prefabricated parts, right? Um, so it used to take three to five years to build uh, a jail or a prison, but they were able to cut that virtually in half um, by uh, using kind of stackable prefabricated cells and building everything out of concrete offsite and effectively putting it together uh, on the island. And so perversely enough, there was remarkable human ingenuity uh, put to work not in the service of building public housing or new schools or anything like that, but building massive uh, jails as quickly as possible, as quickly as anyone had ever done it, right, throughout the 1980s. Um, and this could not have been done without uh, the victory of the law and order movement. Let's talk specifically about the influence of black liberation and other liberation struggles that developed in the 60s onwards and their impact. Sure. Um Beginning with the um, the Nation of Islam in the late uh, 1950s, early 1960s, and then, of course, through Malcolm X, the Black Panthers, the Young Lords, the Five Percenters, a number of militant organizations, um, black and brown power provided uh, the prisoners um, a framework for understanding their situation as collective. Um, and provided um, a political basis for prisoners to organize um, as um, oppressed people, which is not to say that it hadn't been done before, um, but it was a powerful framework. Um, it spoke very much to what many people were already feeling, right? As we know, like who, those of us who have done political organizing, you can, you can talk to working class people until you're blue in the face, but unless they recognize their experiences and what you're saying, they're not going to listen to you. Um, and by the 1960s, these, these political tendencies um, were very much um, speaking a language that people were ready to hear. Um, and so that's really the enduring legacy of uh, black and brown power, which is just casting incarceration as a social and political issue, um, allowing incarcerated people to understand themselves as part of a social struggle. And actually, if you read the um, the procedural discourse on incarceration, meaning that written by prison administrators uh, and written by criminologists and sociologists who are sympathetic to um, prison administrators, they uh, almost unanimously complain that by the late 1960s, a new crop or a new breed or a new type of prisoner had emerged who understood themselves um, as uh, in an adversarial relationship to the jail or prison authority. Um, and this, just reading those accounts made me realize that this was a novelty. I was, I've always just kind of assumed that anywhere there's been prisons and jails that the prisoners realized that the jailers were their enemies. But 
um, they made me realize the extent to which black and brown power in particular provided prisoners with, um, with a collective understanding of the, of the social conflict that they were a part of and gave them the tools to act accordingly. So I want to switch now and talk about the guards, how they've acted independently, but also as units within prison unions. How has that impacted things? I, I tried to tell the story of how rank and file guards were able to work within their union and outside of it um, to realize their ultimate demand for autonomy over their working conditions. And so I used a lot of uh, CLR James, for instance, you know, in the way that he talked about manufacturing workers. You know, I, when I first read that stuff, I immediately thought about the guards, which is kind of a perverse way to understand workerism, but it very much resonates with everything I know about the correctional workforce and how the one thing that they want above all else, forget the pay increases and the overtime, they want unquestioned power over how they use violence. Um, and so they were guards were able to do this within their union, right? But as we know, you know, um, unions have their own limitations. Uh, union leaders become politicians. They become very much a part of the system that they're supposed to be opposing. Um, and so guards have pushed over the years outside of their union. Um, the, the culmination of the book, um, the narrative culmination at least, is... Um, a massive 1990 uh, wildcat strike led by the guards. Uh, and you see the, the union president, this guy, uh, Phil Selig, who is just about the biggest asshole in a book full of assholes. Um, he is chasing after this rank and file initiative. Um, and he's trying to simultaneously represent himself to the city as the only legitimate uh, representative of the union, uh, while at the same time he's saying, I don't have any control over these guys. Don't blame me for what they do. Um, and this is kind of a common story with wildcat strikes, but the reader might be surprised to see those same dynamics playing out in a jail guard union. Um, and so the story uh, of Rikers is a story of how some of the city's most um, um, forgotten, you know, maligned, disrespected workers, right? The jail guards, it's, it's always been a shitty job. Um, it used to be a, a, a low-paying, highly exploitive, um, you know, um, almost uh, on par with being a prisoner job, right? Um, how some of the city's most forgotten, exploited, disrespected workers were able to build a powerful base for themselves. Um, in the corrections workforce and the argument that, that I advance and I got this in large part from an excellent uh, scholar named Rebecca Hill who wrote a wonderful article about New York City jail guards called the common enemy is the boss and the inmate. So building off of uh, Rebecca's analysis, the argument that I put forward was that guards uh, and cops in New York were able to carve out a powerful role for themselves in the city politics and they were able to win autonomy in how they go about their dealings with the people that they police and guard by throwing in their lot with the neoliberal restructuring of New York City. So 
there's a there's a chapter or two in the book about the New York City fiscal crisis when Wall Street basically refused to continue financing New York City's public sector and the city was forced to make catastrophic cuts to its public sector um, almost across the board. At this moment, the guards and the cops who had become a politically organized force capable of undertaking direct actions, capable of staging large, rowdy demonstrations at City Hall, right? The cops and the guards basically said, in no uncertain terms, you can cut any other city agency and we don't care. Cut the parks, cut the schools, we don't care. Cut the public housing, we don't care. But you better not touch us. And because we will continue to make the city run without all of these other agencies. So as New York City considerably shrunk its public sector, which disproportionately devastated black and brown communities, which had benefited a lot um, from uh, public sector employment, the cops and the guards stepped in and reproduced working class life in New York, not with the carrot of Keynesianism, but with the stick, with repression. Uh, and perversely enough, as kind of the icing on the cake, um, the NYPD and the Department of Correction became um, some of the best and most lucrative jobs for working class New Yorkers of color. Um, and so both of those agencies now have a majority non-white workforce. We got a friend sent a really interesting question. So they said, by writing a book about Rikers, do we run the risk essentially of of making that place exceptional. And actually we kind of did that a little bit at the start of it. It, it kind of has this almost like a, a modern day uh, Alcatraz feel to it, at least in the popular imagination we were talking about. Is there something exceptional about it or is it just something that's happening across the country just in this one place that has a lot of history to it? That's a phenomenal question. Um, and I'd like to thank whoever sent that in because this is something that has come up actually in recent years in New York City activism. So um, I talked about this a lot in the introduction to the book. Um, the context in which I wrote this book um, was this political moment when uh, a large part of New York City's official society had turned against Rikers um, and for a number of reasons, um, including the high profile death of Khalif Browder, a young man who was held there for three years under terrible conditions. Um, and uh, a number of activist um, abolitionist organizations set in motion a campaign to close Rikers. What happened, uh, unfortunately, was the, um, the New York City nonprofit sector, uh, led by the Ford Foundation, mobilized uh, to catch the kind of wind of this movement. And they said, yes, we want to close Rikers and we want to replace it with a number of new jails that will be humane. They'll be designed using all of the latest social science knowledge and they won't even be jails anymore. We'll call them justice hubs. They'll be important community meeting sites and they'll be yoga studios on the ground floor and there'll be meeting space for community organizations as kind of woke washed jails. Um, and they, they were actually able to capitalize on the, um, exactly what this question is concerned about. Um, 
they began to parrot this line that uh, New York City activists really like to use, unfortunately. They say, Rikers Island was named after a slave owner or a slave catcher. The story changes, right? Um, which is actually not, it's just not true. Um, it's like literally fake news. Um, Rikers is named after this large Dutch family um, that owned the island for hundreds of years. And one of them um, in the mid 19th century was this real bad dude who was a judge in New York and helped capture runaway slaves and helped bamboozle people who were uh, free blacks into slavery. Um, and he was named Riker. But so this, the activists say Rikers was named after us. Uh, a, a slave owner or a slave catcher. And, and that explains why it's, why it's uh, the way it is today. It's like, no, it's, that doesn't explain anything. I call it the haunted Island hypothesis. It's this idea that there's something uniquely evil about Rikers Island. Um, and the argument that I advance is the only thing that's uniquely evil about Rikers Island is that it contains human cages. And so the argument that I tried to make in this book is that there is nothing special about Rikers except for the fact that there are jails on it and that there's nothing that happens in Rikers Island jails that you could not expect to happen in jails anywhere else that you try to build them. You know, you mentioned previously the role of neoliberalism and sort of, you know, the guards throwing themselves kind of into that project. And in the book, you mentioned that this project of Rikers ended up being a triumph for neoliberalism. Explain that. In New York City in, in the 1970s, it meant something very concrete. Um, this city, uh, state, and federal government were no longer interested in public spending uh, to mitigate structural inequality, structural racism, or any other symptoms of capital society. Um, it, there was decided very deliberately in the mid-1970s that henceforth New York City was going to be run like a business and it was going to be run for the purposes of um, a healthy private sector. And so uh, governing decisions were no longer made with reference to some kind of vaguely defined uh, popular interest, but they were now defined based on um, their uh, ability to help the, the private market. And Rikers was an important part of that equation because uh, mass incarceration is an austerity program. It's a cheap way to reproduce the working class and especially the growing numbers of working class people from that period to the present who were no longer needed in the formal wage market. But with the collapse of manufacturing labor in the United States, you had millions of Americans, um, disproportionately working class people of color, who were no longer needed in, um, in private sector employment. Um, and so public sector programming would have to deal with them one way or another, whether it be public employment, public housing uh, on the one hand, or police and uh, jails on the other. And so... The social order represented by Rikers um, is uh, basically uh, the, the neoliberal regime of, of New York City, uh, governing uh, by and for private profits, uh, and doing so very cheaply. 
And the, the result is you get a whole lot of people uh, who were never given a chance, uh, who are effectively warehoused and moved out of sight. You're listening to It's Going Down, part of the Channel Zero Anarchist Podcast Network. Follow us online at itsgoingdown.org and on Twitter at IGG underscore news. If you like and appreciate this podcast, go to itsgoingdown.org slash shop and give us a one-time donation. Sign up to donate monthly or donate through Bitcoin. Again, that's itsgoingdown.org slash shop to support. And now, back to the show. So looking at the history of Rikers, what do the decades of organizing resistance on both sides of the prison's walls tell us about how prisoners and activists can possibly interact and potentially work together? I'm not sure if I have anything to say about that that your listeners won't already know. Um, but I mean, I think it's very important uh, for activists to push against um, the isolation of prisons and jails. I mean, these are facilities that are designed to be isolated from the outside world. Uh, in a place like Rikers, the flow of information is tightly controlled so that um, it's very difficult for media to get in, uh, politicians to get in, uh, you know, uh, sympathetic community organizations have a difficult time getting in unless they're willing to jump through a thousand hoops. Um, and so I think that something activists can do is they can push back against that by doing things that I'm sure a lot of your listeners are engaged in, like corresponding with people who are locked up, publicizing the struggles inside. Um, and simultaneously, I think that the struggles inside a carceral facility are never neatly divisible from the struggles unfolding outside of a carceral facility. I remember I talked to the, the excellent prison scholar, Ori Burton, about Riker's history. And he said to me something that, that really stuck with me and helped influence the book. You know, we're, we were talking about all of the rebellions that kicked off in the 1960s and 1970s in prisons and jails. And he said, you know, most academics want to say that those rebellions happened because of the bad conditions of the prisons and jails. But why can't they just say that people were rebelling in prisons and jails the same as people were rebelling everywhere, all over the world, in schools, in workplaces, out in the streets, right? Why do we have to limit our understanding of uh, prison rebellion to the, the physical plant of the prison or jail? And I think that the, the even recent actions like the... Um, Prisoner strikes, um, the specifically uh, Black Lives Matter-oriented uh, prisoner activism that was that has been chronicled by Perilists and other journalists uh, demonstrates that uh, prisoners are acutely aware that their struggles are part of um, a much bigger national and international picture, um, and that it's definitely like strategically wise to link up with people who are struggling on the outside. But again, a lot of this work is being done already. Awesome. Well, with that in mind, I just wanted to ask you one last question. Um, there's currently a lot of organizing going on right now to close Rikers, as you know, and we've discussed. What do you think this book offers in terms of lessons to the wider abolitionist struggle? Sure. So this book was very much born out of the campaign to close Rikers. Um, I was involved in it. Um, 
I was really impressed, uh, specifically the group No New Jails. I was impressed not just by um, the initiative, courage, determination of No New Jails activists, but I was even more impressed by the resonance that an abolitionist message received in um, in New York City official society and um, the the large audience that um, No New Jails found for its abolitionist message. Um, so the lesson that I took away from that moment is this is the time. Mass incarceration has been thoroughly discredited in the eyes of tens of millions of people. It's hard to find a single politician in the United States who will support, come, up, come out and speak in support of the prison system. Uh, it's one of the only things that uh, right-wingers and, and liberals can agree on. Um, and so I think we're in a moment that's not without precedent in history. Um, if you look at the, the period that I study in this book, um, the 1950s represented in a lot of ways a similar moment. The city jail system um, was, uh, was antiquated, it was unpopular, um, and it was in need of um, a boost to its legitimacy. And it received a boost to its legitimacy through the progressive reform efforts of these liberal humanists. So I've written about this with my, my good friend, John Akerti, in several places. Um, we're experiencing right now what we call um, a crisis of legitimacy, right, for, for mass incarceration. And the way that we argue it, there's, there's two ways that activists can go. Um, they can allow themselves to be subsumed into the system and to help the system recover its legitimacy, which is what um, the folks in New York have done who have uh, put their social justice bona fides uh, behind building these new jails or justice hubs or whatever they're called. Um, so that's the one road. And the other road that I recommend um, is to just to just inhabit the, the loss of legitimacy and to, to, to encourage it, to deepen it, to publicize the idea that, yes, these facilities have, have lost all legitimacy, but they never deserved it in the first place. Um, and that we can't build a human cage that is going to be anything but what you see on Rikers Island today. So instead of allowing Rikers to be an exception, you know, as as your wonderful question from the contributor uh, was concerned about, um, we hang Rikers Island around the neck of the practice of human caging in general. And we say anything you build to replace Rikers is going to be Rikers. In closing, tell us how we can get a copy of the book and how people can follow your work. Oh, great. Um, so it's available on Verso. You can just go on over to Verso.com. I have a personal website where I publish um, all of my writing, uh, jaredshanahan.com, J-A-R-R-O-D-S-H-A-N-A-H-A-N.com. For the purposes of my uh, sanity and um, living a long life, I stay off of Twitter, uh, but if you search for my name on there, there's a profile that links to my personal site. You're not going to catch me talking about what I had for lunch or the grievances I have with my various colleagues on there, but you can find a link to my writing. 
This has been the It's Going Down podcast. Check itsgoingdown.org for daily updates, columns, action reports, and news. Go to itsgoingdown.org slash shop to support us and follow us on all social media platforms. IGD, your daily resource for insurgent proletarian life.